have solved problems in the past, or at least we've, we've reduced them, and that, I, I think, emboldens us to uh, look at the problems we have now and think, well, we can handle those too, if we decide to do now what our ancestors did in the past that led in the right directions. I know I said in the last episode that we were going to talk about Chapter 1 of The Wealth of Nations, but... In doing a little bit of background research, the book really deserves to be set up um, with kind of some history and context. So it was published the 9th of March, 1776. So as Americans, you know, 1776, that has, you know, that's an important year for us. But it was also a really important um, period of time for um, Adam Smith. Uh, he was Scottish, um, and he was actually with David Hume, one of the fathers of what's known as the Scottish Enlightenment. Uh, the Scottish Enlightenment was sparked by the Greater European Enlightenment, which was kind of like a movement toward the scientific method, uh, humanism, rationality, the rejection of like religious dogma. So this was like a really turbulent time in Scotland in a good way. Um, because part of this uh, push toward rationality and the scientific method sparked um, another revolution known as the Scottish Agricultural Revolution. Because for a long time in Scotland, the land was sort of divided up in tracts of land that were like arable and fertile to kind of crappier, swampier areas where you couldn't grow much. Uh, and they were planting crops the same way they had been doing for like the last five or six hundred years. And they had kind of this fixed hierarchy where there were the husbandmen who sort of like owned the land and managed it. And then you had the cotters who were just like farmhands and they couldn't really advance or like become husbandmen. They were stuck being cotters their whole lives. But, you know, it was a hard it was a hard time for everybody. Um, but with the Enlightenment and this agricultural revolution, you had the introduction of practices like uh, crop rotation. They um, developed drainage systems to kind of drain, drain the swampy areas. And so there were like more crops being grown in better ways and it like changed everything about the economy of Scotland. Um, it became a super wealthy nation and everybody, like everybody was way better off. The people who owned the land and managed it, the people who worked the land, there was just more money going around. So then there were new industries that came in, um, you know, in textiles and manufacturing and all this kind of stuff. So it really like developed their economy and was a huge deal. And over the course of like 17 years, Adam Smith is watching this and with a very analytical, rational, scientific mind is developing the model of why this happens. Like why, why is it that Scotland became such a, like a force? He kind of documented all the changes in their economy and agriculture that led to this and kind of get prescriptions for how other nations and economies could do the same thing. So that's kind of what the book is. Um, and that's kind of what's going on in Scotland uh, during that time. But 
then obviously in America, you have like a really interesting kind of climate as well. Um, in 1773, uh, British Parliament passes uh, the Tea Act, which basically for the colonists sucks because they've been trading tea and they've become really self-sufficient. Um, and they have like all these goods and stuff that they're exchanging. And then the British government comes in and just super regulates all of that activity and is taking like a huge chunk of the, um, just like skimming a ton off of all of that trade and stuff. The colonists are pissed. They, you know, we've all heard of the Boston Tea Party where they dump a bunch of British tea into Boston Harbor. British Parliament retaliates by punishing them with what we now call in American history the intolerable acts which are like, you know, quartering soldiers in the homes of, you know, just like innocent people, um, passing the Boston Port Act, which like shuts down the shipping activity and all this kind of stuff. So then, you know, George Washington and George Mason form a militia that's like an American militia um, against the British government, and there's all these tensions Um and eventually, you've got, in 1775, in April, you've got the right of Paul Revere on April 18th, and then the next day, the British forces arrive, and you've got the Battle of Lexington and Concord, which is like the first battle of the American Revolutionary War. In 1776, in March, um, as this war is going on, on March 2nd, 3rd, and 4th, You've got major American victories that really, you know, like push the war from like a few conflicts to like a full-blown war of American colonists against Britain. March 2nd, 3rd, and 4th of 1776, you've got these major American victories. And then on March 9th, the book The Wealth of Nations is published in London. So like, it's just crazy the timing of this uh, major... Um, publication. Uh, and then just a little, a few months later, 4th of July, 1776, we all know, you know, the Declaration of Independence is ratified. And then the war goes on for, you know, a few years. So from 1776 to like 1783, well, in 1782, the Treaty of Paris is signed, which like officially ends the war. And then in 1783, British troops leave New York City. So by the time the war has calmed down, the founding fathers, some of them are like reading the book, The Wealth of Nations, and it's having a pretty direct impact on, you know, some of the policies and some of the ideas that become part of the American way of life. So all of this stuff is... It's just crazy that it all happened at the same time. Like, it's all happening within, you know, a decade. Um, and then you've also got, at this same time, you've got James Cook, the explorer, who's, like, going around establishing trade routes, like, to just discovering totally new places no one knew was there um, in the Pacific. Um, you know, he circumnavigates the globe, uh, during the same time span, like in the same 15 or 20 year um, span of all this stuff happening.
Uh, and then, you know, in the American colonies, both before and after the war, you've just got crazy, like, things happening that have, things like that just never happened before. You know, you've got people like Daniel Boone pushing the frontier of British and American influence um, further west into, like, Tennessee and Kentucky, fighting Indians, you know, and just, like, if you look up Daniel Boone, like, his life was crazy. Uh, and James Cook, too. Uh, just a lot of crazy stuff going on in the world. So I hope that setup kind of helps bring something to the reading of this book. Um, and the, the, the first thing I want to get into in the book is in the introduction, and it's Adam Smith getting into, like, why are there wealthy nations like Scotland? Like, what is it specifically that led Scotland to become, you know, not just Scotland, but Scotland, England, France, Spain, Portugal? Um, what is it that led these nations to be wealthy and other nations all over the world to be like, why are there poor nations and wealthy nations, basically? And so this is uh, an excerpt from the introduction of the Wealth of Nations where he kind of asks this question and gets into a little bit of the explanation. Among the savage nations of hunters and fishers, every individual who is able to work is more or less employed in useful labor and endeavors to provide as well as he can the necessaries and conveniences of life for himself and such of his family or tribe as are either too old or too young or too infirm to go hunting and fishing. Such nations, however, are so miserably poor that from mere want they are frequently reduced, or at least think themselves reduced, to the necessity sometimes of directly destroying and sometimes of abandoning their infants, their old people, and those afflicted with lingering diseases to perish with hunger or to be devoured by wild beasts. Among civilized and thriving nations, on the contrary, though a great number of people do not labor at all, many of whom consume the produce of ten times, frequently of a hundred times more labor than the greater part of those who work. Yet the produce of the whole labor of the society is so great that all are often abundantly supplied. And a workman, even of the lowest and poorest order, if he is frugal and industrious, may enjoy a greater share of the necessaries and conveniences of life than it is possible for any savage to acquire. The causes of this improvement in the productive powers of labor and the order according to which its produce is naturally distributed among the different ranks and conditions of men in the society make the subject of the first book of this inquiry. So I, uh, you know, minus the word savage is getting thrown around, which, you know, will cut uh, Smith some slack for being a Scottish guy in the 1700s, I guess. But the I love this introduction, uh, this concept of the disparity between wealthy nations and poor nations is um, really interesting to me, and it's a big part of why I became interested in economics in the first place. Um, over the last couple of years, I've been really influenced by um, a movement called Effective Altruism. It was started uh, a few years ago 
by William McCaskill and another um, Oxford student. Um, Will McCaskill is a professor of philosophy at Oxford now, and he kind of leads uh, this uh, effective altruism community. It's the marriage of economics and moral philosophy, specifically like the philosophy of altruism. So uh, what McCaskill kind of outlines in uh, his book, Doing Good Better, which is a really good jumping off point for anyone interested in effective altruism, he basically says, like, there are a lot of good things we can do in the world, but there are some things that are, like, way better than other things. So, like, if you give your uh, money to a charity that, you know, distributes books to inner city kids um, in North America versus a charity that distributes uh, bed nets to protect against mosquitoes in Kenya or Uganda, those two uses of your money are going to have very different outcomes. Um, in the case of like donating books to inner city schools, they've never proven that it leads to any kind of improvement in students' education, in their, even like the time spent reading or their access to information. Um, but there are a lot of charities like this, you know, that give away materials or provide, you know, counseling services, all kinds of charities um, that haven't been shown to actually improve people's lives. On the other hand, you have charities, uh, a lot of which um, are health and development initiatives in third world countries that actually have a huge impact. Like uh, the highest rated charity, according to the um, effective altruism community in their research, is the Against Malaria Foundation that distributes these uh, bed nets that are kind of sprayed with mosquito repellent. And they've proven that the distribution of these nets prevents enough cases of malaria that they for sure save a life for every like few thousand bed nets that they distribute. And that is correlated to like every five to seven thousand dollars that's donated to the organization. So if you knew that you could save someone's life by spending seven thousand dollars, like if you had the ability to do that, even if it was someone you didn't know, like you would. And they've proven that's the reality. If you give seven thousand dollars to the Against Malaria Foundation, you will save someone's life who would have died of malaria because they were bitten by a mosquito carried it or whatever effective altruism movement is it there's a lot of uh, areas of research and topics that they're interested in um, if uh, you're interested in learning more there's a podcast called future perfect that kind of outlines some of the major research areas and different ways that people are contributing to this movement and stuff um, and an even more in-depth jumping-off point is the book Doing Good Better by Will McCaskill, who is the founder of the effective altruism movement. Uh, if any of you listening are interested in learning more about it, 
feel free to message me. I'll include my email and um, links to all of this stuff in the uh, episode description. Uh, If you're interested in effective altruism, I will buy you the book Doing Good Better if you're seriously interested, because I feel like, you know, I'm donating um, a certain percentage of my income to the charities um, that have been selected by the effective altruism community as being effect, uh, as being some of the most effective doing the most good. Um, but I think one of the best ways I could, um, have an impact is by turning someone else on to donating a portion of their income. I, that may be like a, an even better way for me to kind of make a contribution there. So if you're interested, hit me up, I'll buy you an audio book or I'll buy you a physical book and ship it to your house if you're interested. So please check in next episode, I guess, and we really will get to chapter one of the division of labor. With reason and science and a concern for human welfare, we can gradually make people better off. And as long as we maintain that kind of philosophy of, of, of living, uh, then we then there's a reasonable hope that we can solve the problems facing us. It doesn't happen by itself. There's not you know a magic escalator. There's no you know uh, uh, arc of history or dialectic or any mystical stuff that just makes us better and better. There's uh, recognizing problems and figuring out how the world works and doing our best to solve them. So that was that was the message. And the fact that we have had progress, contrary to the impressions you get from the headlines, shows that this is not a crazy, idealistic, optimistic pipe dream. It's happened, and some more of it can happen.